what do a boutique owner, uh, the town sheriff, and a fortune teller have in common? That, that's not a punchline or asking a joke. Um, it's actually the church at Philippians. It's people who had faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ at a place that we know of as Philippi. And so as we embark on this new course of study through the book of Philippians this morning, I'd love for you to turn to Acts chapter 16. So if you would do that uh, in your Bible, Acts chapter 16, because I'm going to read a, a good section of it. I'm going to read at a good clip so you can just listen, but I'd love for you to set your eyes on it uh, because this is uh, regarding Paul's second missionary journey. Um, trying to remember the time frame right here off the top of my head. It's circa uh, 50 A.D., and this is the story of the founding of the church at Philippi. So when we read the book of Philippians, we think, yeah, that's nice, that's good stuff, that's interesting. We need to keep in mind that Paul was writing to a specific group of people, not to say that there's not application for us today, there is, but he was writing to specific individuals and he knew them. He had relationships with them. So here we go, Acts chapter 16 I'm going to start at, uh, I'll start at verse 1 and see how I do, because it's going to give us background on some of the key play players at Philippi. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him to circumcise and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their ways through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. All right, pause button. So that's Paul the apostle, Timothy his young protege, right? His true son in a common faith. Um, we read about them. Pick up verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That paragraph is explanation. Why did they go to Philippi? Here we go. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposed that there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. She's our boutique owner, guys. 
who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. Here's our fortune teller. Who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed... That's Dr. Luke uh, giving a little commentary there, our, our writer of Acts, right? Be having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain, right, money, income, was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. You know what stocks are, right? Uh, usually a wooden device clasps over the ankles, right? Holds you in place. You can't go anywhere. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Hang on. He's about to kill himself, drew his sword. How's he going to do it? Harry Carey, right? He's going he's to plunge it into his, his midsection. He's going to disembowel himself and bleed out. Because that, this is his job, and he's failed in it, it seems. But, verse 28, Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. That's enough for our purposes. The, there's a little follow-up there, some fallout. Paul stands on principle, and there's some, uh, some things after that. And they go back and they see Lydia again before leaving the area. But this is the story of Lydia, the first convert in Europe. This is the story of the Philippian jailer who asked, what must I do to be saved? 
And, and the gospel is spoken to him, right? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Faith alone is proclaimed to him. The slave girl, these are the people and their families upon whom the church at Philippi was established and founded and, and then they, they correspond over the years. So, so who is here? It's Paul and Timothy. Timothy with the, the Gentile dad, but a godly heritage from his mother and grandmother. We read elsewhere in the New Testament. And, and it's addressed to the, these people, these individuals that he had met and that he knew and that he corresponded with and sent letters back and forth through the hand of one of his buddies, Epaphroditus. And in chapter 4, were we to go there, he calls out other of the people at this church, Euodia and Syntyche, and he urges them to get along uh, together in the Lord. He names names. He calls them out publicly. And, and he, he refers to a, a brother or a fellow worker and a guy named Clement. These are real people. One of my colleagues says, God put together a group of people from different backgrounds and preferences, temperaments and weaknesses, calls it a church and says, get along. Unity is hard. Love is hard. Church is hard. That's what my colleague says about it. Did you catch that the Lord opened her heart to believe? Lydia, that is. The Lord opened her heart to believe. God did a work in her heart. She was already seeking God. She was at the place of prayer. It's a technical term that she was a, a God-fearer, a worshiper of God. She was seeking the Lord because God had put that into her heart. And then God opened her heart to respond to the gospel and to place her faith in Christ and to be saved. That's how the church at Philippi started. And we've got to keep these individuals in mind as we read the book of Philippians. And so this summer, Lord willing, we're going to go through the book of Philippians and we're going to do it at a, at a good pace, guys. We're going to do it at a pretty fast clip, uh, uh, two weeks per chapter. That's covering a lot of ground. So here we go now with Philippians chapter 1, the first half. Uh, verses 1 through into, into verse 18. Uh, you can look in your pew Bible or your device. You can listen. You've also got it provided on the back of your sermon outline. Paul, Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day when? Acts 16, that Sabbath day down by the river. Until now. Very famously, verse 6, And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. 
For you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, that is those who preach Christ from envy and rivalry, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, this is awesome. Uh, your word has been described as a love letter for your people. It is special revelation. It reveals to us the way of knowing you through faith in Christ. It is full of precious and magnificent promises. Your word is truth. It is breathed out by you. It's inspired. Men moved along, carried along by your Holy Spirit preserved for us that we might have everything we need to believe in Jesus and to live godly in Christ, to walk in manners worthy of our calling in him. We pray now that you would bring your word and your spirit to bear here on us. Gathered here at Grace Presbyterian Church or those watching online, we pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. A church is born. We've already talked about it, really, the, the, the various players. Paul and Timothy, servants, you know, bond servants, doulos, bond slaves of Jesus Christ. He counted it a privilege to be, as it were, a slave to God. That's true freedom, isn't it? Galatians 5.1. True, true freedom is not being set loose, do whatever you want to do. True freedom is knowing the master, the one who protects and provides. True freedom is found in servitude to the God who made you and sent his son to redeem you. Paul and Timothy and Silas and, and Luke, this traveling band of missionary evangelists, and they meet these people that we've got to keep in mind, not just think, oh, yes, I need to do this or that when you read Philippians, or, oh, isn't that wonderful doctrine there? 
but we need to think about Paul was speaking to these folks, Euodia and Clement and Lydia and all the rest, their, their families. Now let's talk about his prayer for a moment, praying with joy. A year ago, roughly, at this time, maybe, maybe a little more, we had just been in the midst of a study, a book by D.A. Carson called Praying with Paul. Well, you don't have to read the book. It's a great book. I commend it to you. Ben loves it. It's very meaningful in his life. You don't have to read the book, but when we read the prayers of Paul, we see what he prays about is not just, not just circumstances. Lord, I don't like my circumstances. Please change my circumstances. Amen. That's not how Paul prays. He prays for people. And he asks second, he asks for character development. First, he thanks God for gospel partnership with these people. Paul prays for people, for people like the jailer, the fortune teller girl who is set free from her sins. He thanks God for gospel partnership. Now, if you've been in the church for a while, which most of y'all have been, koinonia, you've probably heard that term. Some churches have small groups they call koinonia groups. It's the Greek word uh, fellowship, sharing, partnership. And that word appears over and over and over in the book of Philippians. Fellowship. Just a moment on the topic of fellowship. Fellowship, friends, is more than punching cookies after the service. I'll, I'll eat my share of cookies. I don't know if I like punch, but, but uh, you know, punching cookies is great. You know, how you doing, man? Did you see that game yesterday? Well, that's nice. That's socializing. And we need socializing in the church. We need to be with one another, and we need to get to know one another. I don't think that's true Christian fellowship. The fellowship that Paul speaks of here and elsewhere is gospel partnership. It involves praying together, meeting together, sharing the faith together. I don't know of anything that unites brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know of anything that unites the people of God so much as those two of those things, praying together and going out and sharing the faith together. That will bond you. That will bind you together. I try to intentionally, about every year and a half or so, spend some time with some of my brothers who are not of my tribe. They're mostly Reformed Baptist guys. Um, and I try to do ministry with them about every year, year and a half, because we have gospel fellowship. We're out going into the prisons and other places, sharing the, working with at-risk youth, sharing the faith together. And the fellowship in the spirit, the bond that we have in Christ, is bigger than any denominational ties. Fellowship is not just punching cookies, praying together, meeting together, sharing the faith. It also involves contributing resources. That's part of gospel partnership. It is spoken of in Philippians and guess what? Guess who Paul is talking about when he talks to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. You do well to read those two chapters. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is bragging about some people to the church at Corinth. Who is he bragging on? Euodia and Syntyche. 
and Clement and the jailer and Lydia and all the rest at Philippi in Macedonia, in Greece, in, in Europe. That's who he's bragging on. He's saying, man, y'all, y'all look at these people. They're not people of great wealth. They're people of modest means, and they insist on contributing to the needs of the saints and having gospel partnership in, in this way more than once. And first they give themselves to the Lord and then to us. That is gospel partnership. That is biblical fellowship. I'd call partnership such as this teamwork in the truth. It's teamwork in the truth. And these people stood by Paul through thick and thin from the start, even when he was persecuted and ultimately arrested for the cause of Christ, thrown in jail. And what does he pray for these people? He thanks God for them. Second, he asks for character development. It's right there in the prayer, right? Verses uh, uh, 9 through 11. He prays that their, their love would be abounding. And not just a fuzzy feeling, but with knowledge and discernment. The word discernment there, it's the only place it's used in this form in the Greek New Testament. And it means, in effect, to, to cut through the haze of life. It's the same root that's used over in Hebrews 5.14 to have your senses trained to discern good and evil, which is what we're supposed to be doing, right? It's shrewdness as we test the spirits, as it says in one of John's epistles, 1 John 4. That's how he prays for them, that their love would be abounding and it'd be meaningful, that they'd be pure and, pure and blameless, verse 10. Ready to meet the Lord. When it talks about the day of Christ, the day of Christ, at the day of Christ, it's talking about his second coming. It's talking about his return. And he wants them to be pure and blameless. He speaks of the righteousness that comes through Christ. Verse 11, how do you get pure and blameless? It's not on your own, friends. It's not by using hand sanitizer. It's by coming to Jesus Christ. It's by receiving cleansing from God through the Holy Spirit, the, the application of the blood of Christ to you, not, not physically, but spiritually. It's the washing away of sin. It's forgiveness. It's forgiveness of sins in Christ, and you can't get it on your own. It's not through hard work. It's not through sincerity. It's through union with Christ. It's through association with the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way that you or I or anyone becomes pure and blameless in the sight of a holy God, made acceptable in His presence, given right standing with God. So He alone gets the glory, soli deo gloria. He alone gets the glory because salvation is all of him. You contribute not one iota, not one scintilla. Salvation is not a 50-50 proposition. It's not 90-10. It's not 99 and 1. I I can never remember the, the, was it it Jonathan Edwards, the the theologian who said, or was it C.S. Lewis? Somebody said, you contribute nothing to your salvation other than the sin that made it necessary. The righteousness comes through Christ. And we have not only right standing with God, but we're filled with this fruit of righteousness in our lives. 
Who's this letter addressed to, by the way? It's folks that are pure and blameless. They're not made so of their own doing. It's by faith in Christ. It's addressed to saints in Christ Jesus, right? I kind of ran past that, verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Saints, hagias, holy ones, ones, persons made holy by coming into contact and union with the Lord Jesus Christ. I, sp- I had a, a mini high school reunion yesterday, and one of my old buddies, uh, we were talking about the old days and our, my former lifestyle, and I said to him, your, please greet your mother for me. Your mother is a saint. And he knew what I meant with language meaning as use. And by the way, his mother, Norma, is, is a committed believer uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when I said that, you're, you know, man, say hello to your mother. Your mother is a saint. He knew what I meant. I, I meant that she had put up with a lot from me and him. That's not how Paul uses the term saint. Everyone is a saint. You don't become a saint by getting voted on by the church. It's not a status for some Christians and not others. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. You must be a saint. You must be made pure. You must be made blameless by Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ, if you have union with him by faith, by his grace, then you are a saint. The Bible And the book of Philippians is not some sort of self-help book that you'll find on the New York Times bestseller list. It's not just giving us advice for how to live, live a better life or improve this way or that way. It is proprietary perspectives for partakers of grace. Verse 7, partakers of grace. And I talk with you, and, and you know, you're a believer in Christ. You're here today because you're interested in the church and the Word of God and, and the things of God and the gospel, and we're talking. And, 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 but then you might say to me, well, Pastor, <laughs> I'm no saint. Yes, you are. Yes, you are if you are in Christ. That's your only hope. I feel like Oprah, you're a saint, and you're a saint, and you're a saint. If you are in Christ Jesus, do you know that Paul uses the terms in Christ, in Christ Jesus, or in the Lord 132 times in his writings? That's because I I think the paramount doctrine in all of Paul's teaching, and he penned roughly half the New Testament, is union with Christ, association with Jesus, identification with his person, alignment then with his cause. Are you familiar with his favor? By his grace, do you know him? That's how Paul prays for people. And then there's joy in jail. Letter C in your outline, verses 7 and 8. There's joy in jail. Joy is mentioned at least 15 times. Joy or rejoice. And it's not an emotion. Charlie mentioned in his uh, pastoral prayer that you know, happiness and joy are not the same thing. I, I agree. I think happiness is largely circumstance-based. You know, man, I, I like what's going on in my life right now. Things are good. I'm happy. Joy is much more deep than that for the believer. 
You can experience sorrow. You can experience grief. You can experience loss and simultaneously be experiencing the joy of the Lord in your life. Joy is not an emotion. How do I know that? It's an imperative in the book of Philippians. It's a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. It's an exhortation, not an emotion. That's why I've entitled this sermon series, Choose Joy. Yes, it's only by His grace. Yes, it's in the power of the Spirit. As we cooperate, as we work together with the Lord, as we'll see later in Philippians chapter 2. Paul's in jail. Philippians is a prison epistle. Your first bullet item under letter C. Philippians is a prison epistle. As I said, second missionary journey, circa 4950 A.D., he goes and, we, and Lydia is the first convert in Europe. And this is roughly a decade or a dozen years later. So the church is about 12 years old. And Paul is now in his first Roman imprisonment. It's under house arrest. It's not a pleasant thing. It wasn't as bad as where you and I studied a couple years ago, 2 Timothy, the Mamertine prison, which was a dungeon, a, a cistern, deep, dark, dank, and dripping. It wasn't quite that bad. He was allowed to have visitors come and go, but it was no picnic either. He was never alone, constantly chained to the Roman imperial guards. There's an old poem, part of which says, Two men looked out through the same bars. One sees mud, the other stars. Look at Paul's perspective. He's writing from jail, and he's not going, Oh, woe is me. This is miserable. How the, uh, this is the thanks I get for serving the Lord. Why, oh, why, God, would you allow this to happen to me? That's not what he says. The great commentator Alec Moutier says, Paul did not see his suffering as an act of divine forgetfulness, why did God let this happen to me, nor as a, a dismissal from service, I was looking forward to years of usefulness and now look at me, nor as the work of Satan, I'm afraid the devil has had his way this time but as the duty, the setting for service, the task appointed. This was his new missionary outpost. Jail in Rome. The anonymous author of Hebrews in chapter 10 speaks about a similar perspective for other believers other than, you might say, well, that was the Apostle Paul. He was a special case. No, we're all saints, and this is spoken of of other believers in the first century. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. Who's that? Just everybody in jail? But specifically the brethren who were in jail for their faith. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. There are persecutions breaking out all over the empire, localized ones before a empire-wide one. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Other believers, 
first century adopted the same outlook that Paul did. Joy in jail, rejoicing, rising above their circumstances. One PCA teaching elder remarks, instead of reporting how he was doing, Paul talks about how the gospel is doing. Incarceration did not demoralize Paul. It galvanized him. And he speaks here not of himself. You know, can you send a blanket? I, you know, I'm, I'm cold here or whatever. Uh, he, he, he talks about the affection he has for these people. Verse 8. When we get to chapter 2 in the first verse there, it'll say it again, affection. So choose joy. I said it's not an emotion. It's a command. Believers need to rejoice in the Lord in spite of their circumstances. But he also talks about affection for his fellow believers, these people at the church who were the church, the church that met in Lydia's house. Affection for them because they are fellow partakers of grace. Verse 7. Partakers, there's that word, the root koinonia again. It's intensified here. It means close companions, joint sharers. We who have union with Christ are all recipients of a great lavish gift, God's kindness and favor to us through Jesus Christ. And that ought to humble us. It ought to work gratitude in us. And it ought to engender that affection one for another because, wow, you, you, you made it too? <laughs> it's not something that wells up from within. It, it's granted to us by God. And the gospel advances, letter, letter D in your outline. The gospel advances. It had become known throughout that whole Roman guard, that whole imperial guard called the Praetorian Guard, verse 13, quartered in Rome. Others were emboldened to share the faith. Others at the church there in Rome. When you take a stand for Christ, other believers will come out of the woodwork. When you take a stand for Christ, it may be in your extended family, at, you know, Fourth of July picnic coming up. I don't know. It may be in your workplace. If you're a student, it may be in the classroom. When you take a stand for Christ, other believers will take a stand too when they see your example and they'll come to you and you know there's something going on, somebody knocking the faith, making fun of Christians. Now some, sometimes we deserve to be made fun of because we live up to our own stereotypes. But, but a lot of times there's mischaracterizations about our Lord Jesus and the gospel that are not right. And when you open your mouth in boldness, Holy Spirit boldness, and you speak a word for Christ and say, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, friend, but that's not how the Lord Jesus has treated me. When you do something like that, then your cousin at the family reunion this summer is going to go, I'm so glad that you said something. I'm a Christian too. Your classmate in school is going to do that. You stand up to the teacher who is saying, oh, you can't believe the Bible. It's a bunch of myths and fairy tales been translated so many times. You can't trust in it. You say, and you stand up and say, excuse me, prof. Uh, I mean this in a good way, but when's the last time you gave the Bible a good reading? 
I've been reading it, and it's, I found it really meaningful in my life as a college student, and it's helping me. Afterwards, some of your classmates will come up to you and they'll say, I'm so glad you said something to that guy. He's always knocking the faith. He's always putting us down and, and worse, putting Jesus down. And, and I've wanted to say something. I'm so glad you said something. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to talk to one of my sweet mates at the dorm now because of what you said. The gospel advances. The New American Standard says it's turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, and it is indeed two works, two words in Greek, and one of them, the root, means to cut or chop. So, so the gospel blazes a trail. By the way, when you blaze a trail, we, we again, meaning is used when it comes to language. We know what that means to be kind of a pace setter or something, right? Blaze a trail. But what it really means, and some of you guys who are hikers know this, you, you take your hatchet and you put a mark in the tree, right? That's why you look up and, well, they don't cut the trees anymore. They put an emblem or something, right? But, but you, you, you whack a little hatchet spot on the tree where it shows white. You've blazed the trail. You've shown the way. You've given signposts of the way to go. And that's what the gospel does for us in life. Again, this... PCA teaching elder colleagues remarks that for Paul, joy is not the result of finding himself in comfortable circumstances, but of seeing the gospel make progress through his circumstances and through the circumstances of the Philippians, whatever they may be. Happiness isn't the same thing as joy. Motives matter, but God's providence rules. That's your Asterisk item under letter D, motives matter, but God's providence rules. What do I mean by this? Well, there are negative motives here mentioned in verse 15, and also some positive motives. So I don't forget the positive motives. Some others are standing up in their preaching Christ from goodwill, from love, and in truth. That those are the good motives. What's more easily noticeable, I think, are these mixed motives, negative motives. Uh, motives. Verse uh, 15, envy, rivalry. Verse 17, selfish ambition and insincerity. Pretense. What's pretense? That's putting on a false front, purporting to be one thing when the reality is you're, you're really another. It so what were these false motives that other preachers of the gospel had? Well, they're seeking to make a name for themselves rather than glorifying the name of Christ. They had ulterior motives, hidden agendas, seeking to cause Paul distress. Friends, that's taking your eye off the ball. They're worried about Paul's following, even while he's in prison. And sometimes I put it to you that, that people and pastors do that in the church today still. Churches are in competition or rivalry with one another. Well, he's got more people. He's got more Twitter followers. Well, he gets invited to more conferences. You know, that is taking your eye off the ball. That is not what we are about. Seeking to call, cause Paul distress, that's, that's, 
crazy. The great preacher Lloyd-Jones, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the gospel tells us that we may be surrounded by difficult people. There may be criticism. There may be jealousy. Yet, this joy of the Lord is something that can survive even that. The joy of the Lord is greater than all this. Motives matter, but God's providence rules. There is currently a Chinese pastor in prison. He was sentenced to nine years in prison uh, December 30th, 2019. His name is Pastor Wang Yi. He is pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church in China. He says, if I am imprisoned for a long or short period of time, I can help, if I can help reduce the authorities' fear of my faith and of my Savior, I am very joyfully willing to help them in this way. Oh, my goodness. That puts me to shame. Sentenced to nine years in jail, separated from his family, separated from his church, his current location, whereabouts, unknown. For pastoring a church, for preaching the gospel, for printing Christian literature. That's what the Chinese authorities got him for. Some practical points. Letter E in your outline. As we make these practical points, keep in mind what I said earlier. Paul knew these people. He knew Lydia. He knew the jailer. He knew Clement. He knew Euodia and all the rest. But there is meaning for us today in North Carolina in 2021. Again, I quote Lloyd-Jones from, oh, gee, from over half a century ago. The unique thing about Scripture is that a letter which may have been written for more or less personal reasons has a universal application. It was written for personal reasons. It's intensely personal. It's Paul exhorting the church there at Philippi. But it's meaningful for you and for me in our faith at Grace Presbyterian Church in Fuquay, too. Here are some modern-day applications for us. Number one, share the faith where God has placed you, where God has placed you. Well, I made a mistake. Well, I shouldn't have done this, or this can't be right. God has placed you. God has put people into your life in his sovereignty. Your neighbors, your family, your co-workers. Do you think that this is apart from the hand of God? It is not. He talks about verses 7 and 16, the defense of the gospel and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. We just don't have time to talk about that. The verse in Peter we looked at not so long ago, being ready to give an account for the hope that is within you. Share the faith. Verse 14, it says, the other believers at the church in Rome had far more confidence to speak the word of God, as we've already mentioned, without fear. 
where the gospel goes, where the Holy Spirit goes, fear disappears. Share the faith where God has placed you, recognizing He has placed you. Say a word for Christ. Number two, rejoice when Christ is proclaimed. Rejoice when Christ is proclaimed. In the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, right? We all know it. It's read at weddings. In the love chapter, one verse says, Do not rejoice at wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the truth. Rejoice when the gospel is going out via another church in your neighborhood or in our community. Don't go, oh, man, they got more people than we do. How come we can't get more people? Rejoice. When Christ is proclaimed, we preach and proclaim a person, not a philosophy, not simply a code of moral ethics. I believe in the moral will of God, the tertiary use, you theologians out there. We proclaim a person, Christ and Him crucified. Christ risen from the dead. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we preach and proclaim a person. Last application point, memorize Philippians 1.6. Uh, I know a different version than the ESV. I'm confident of this very thing that he who began the good work in you will complete it, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I don't care, NAS, ESV, whatever you want. Memorize Philippians 1.6 if you haven't already. It's one of the most famous verses in the book. In the journal of Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary to the Aka people in Ecuador, his most famous quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news about a person. Thank you for the good news about Jesus. Thank you, Father, that once at the right time, at the consummation of the ages, you sent forth your Son to save sinners like me, like us. Embolden us by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, who believe in you by your grace, by faith. Embolden us to love you, to rejoice in you, to share the faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Rejoice.